Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and welcome back to our uh, final message from the book of Daniel. As you know, we have walked through the 12 chapters, or we're today going to be covering chapters 10 through 12, which are the last three chapters of the book. And if you are just now stepping in or you've been following the journey um, all along, I want to just give you kind of a brief tip for maybe uh, better uh, getting your arms around uh, this book as a whole. I'm certain that some of you who are very diligent in studies of the Word or very curious about this topic of eschatology and God's sovereignty, uh, you're going to go back and read this even after the time when we're done and moved on to other uh, series and topics. But uh, when you think about those 12 chapters, think about chapters 1 through 6 as being um, a deeply uh, personal application of God's sovereignty in the life of Daniel and his friends. And then think about chapters 7 through 12 as a deeply global or very global all right, so chapters 1 through 6, very local application of the truth of God's sovereignty and verses, or excuse me, in chapters 7 through 12, a very global application, but still has local and personal implications. And uh, that's the beautiful thing uh, about our God as he is the, I call him the manager uh, and curator of human history and time. He's, he's eternal, which means he stands outside of time. He's not subject to it. He chooses to step into it and reach in there. But God is eternal, standing outside of time. And uh, when we look at just the beauty of how his sovereignty works, it can sometimes be a little bit uh, uh, challenging or confusing, but, but just know this, that your God is in control and that there's nothing that's happening outside of the sphere of one, his knowledge, uh, or his ability, or even his providence. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to step back into um, chapters 10 through 12 and close out our series, and I hope your heart will be blessed. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you um, this morning, and we are deeply thankful for every jot, every tittle, every single word, every syllable of your word that you have preserved for us throughout time and history. We agree with what the scriptures teach, that these things have been written aforetime for our learning, at a minimum to give us examples of both uh, how to live as we look at the lives of those that preceded us in the faith, and even example, negative examples of how not to live for those who preceded us and disobeyed in the faith, but also, Lord God, giving us just this historic um, uh, diary of your great work among men. Lord God, it is refreshing and it is encouraging. Uh, and it also, Lord God, at times can be frightening. And we just pray, Lord God, that where we find ourselves struck with fear and anxiety when reading your passages or reading your texts and, and reading, Lord God, just these, uh, this beautiful, um, Lord God, just kind of display of your excellent greatness, that you would rescue our hearts from that anxiety and cause our anxiety to be swallowed up into a new sense of worship and appreciation for you and your great work. So lead and guide us now as we uh, take on these final three chapters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, if you were here last week, you know that uh, the title of last week's message was, was The Long Game. The Long Game. And one of the, the great encouragements from that message was, um, uh, you know, a deeper understanding or a better understanding of the end times gives us a more consistent faith in the meantime. And we kind of use the analogy, if you will, of the stock market and how uh, regardless of how it's trending in the meantime, if you understand how it happens over all time, you can invest with greater confidence. And I, what I hope happened as a result of that message was that many of us who were afraid of or ignorant of uh, eschatology, that is the study of end times, were brought a little bit closer 
and, and were, were compelled or encouraged to actually invest their more faith, more consistently in what God is doing on a grand scale. And so um, today we're going to continue our, um, our conversation on the long game. We're going to, this is the title of this is just the long game part two. And we're going to look at yet another aspect of God's uh, 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 God's uh, big plan, his big story of redemption. And we're going to look at it again with a, with a particular focus on the Lord's sovereignty. In order to help us appreciate this, I want to tell you uh, about a time that I worked for a particular organization back in the day. Seems like I've had a million jobs, but trust me, I'm not. I've, I've stayed some places for a very long time. Many of you already know that. But anyway, uh, here goes. Um, I definitely remember uh, back in the late, I think it was 1998, or I know for a fact it was 1998 and 1999 uh, that I worked for uh, the largest salty snack manufacturer in the world, and that is Frito-Lay, for those of you who don't know. And I remember during my uh, first few weeks, there was an orientation that we were going through, and they took us inside of one of the facilities where they manufacture uh, the product. And I remember seeing this uh, trailer off of an 18-wheeler being lifted up by some apparatus as if it were a toy. And all of these tons of potatoes rumbling off of the back of this truck onto some sort of conveyor, and uh, it was moving about, and, and there was some kind of analysis going on. I think there may have been like lasers and waters and con conveyors involved. And the uh, person who was orchestrating the tour told us that uh, Frito-Lay at the time had the largest contracts with farmers nationally, and they had so many potatoes that they actually took the potatoes that they didn't want and gave them to their competitors. Now that's a that's a that's a a really interesting uh, idea that you have so much marketplace sovereignty that you can give your leftovers to your competitors. I, I was struck by that. But there's something else that I want you to note by this story in terms of Frito-Lay's footprint in the marketplace. And this is something that strikes my heart today some 20 plus years later after having left the organization. Uh, whenever I walk into a grocery store, uh, if I walk, I don't know whether it's in Mississippi, whether it's in Madrid, whether I'm in LA, whether I'm in Missouri, whether I'm in you know, Alabama, Florida, no matter where I am, I know that I can walk down the aisles of a liquor store uh, or a package store, uh, a corner store, a drug store, a grocery store, something as massive as a wholesale club like a Sam's Club or BJ's in any country, in any state of any size. And I know that when I walk down the aisles, I'm going to see these products from Frito-Lay arranged this way. Tostitos, Doritos, Fritos, Cheetos, Allies, Lays, and Ruffles. Same order everywhere you go. Tostitos, Doritos, Fritos, Cheetos, Allies, Lays, and Ruffles. This was the global marketing plan that no matter where you went, you would always see the same thing, regardless of what sections of the store you might have been in, regardless of what part of the world you may have been in. This was a global marketing plan that was pushed down to all salespeople and merchandisers and how the product was to be set up in each one of the stores. And what was beautiful about that is you can see, uh, you know, you know, 20 plus years uh, far removed, over, over 30 years removed from working for the organization, I still remember that. And it shapes the way that I view uh, the product when I go into the stores and what I look for. I know what to look for no matter what. Like if I see a bag of Doritos with my eyes closed, I know where to find the Tostitos or the Fritos or the Cheetos. Now this middle section, Allies, Lays and Ruffles, uh, Allies is any uh, organization that made a product that Frito-Lay 
acquired. They bought the company as opposed to organically produced it or made it for themselves. But you would always have that same arrangement, Tocitos, Doritos, Fritos, Cheetos, Allies, Lays, and Ruffles. And what I found to be amazing about that is that in different seasons uh, of the year, different times of the year, different products sold um, at higher levels. In other words, uh, right now, during the holiday season, nothing outsells rolled gold pretzels, which is a Frito-Lay product. Um, it's just a common staple in holiday parties and et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, come March Madness, there'll be rolled gold pretzels plus uh, Tostitos or things that you use for dip. Uh, and as the seasons go on, summertime, Doritos will pick up, Cheetos. And if you go into an urban market, nothing outsells uh, flaming hot Cheetos uh, in the hood. Uh, and so it's just amazing. It's amazing to me to watch in the marketplace how no matter uh, what the season, what the location, or what the place is, that there is always a flavor that seems to, 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 to be dominant in that market. But hear this, no matter what the season, no matter what the size, no matter what the location, no matter what the flavor, there is always some aspect of the Frito-Lay brand that people can savor. Why do I share this? Not because I want you to all go run out and fill out applications uh, with Frito-Lay or that I want you to go out and validate the marketing plan, which you can, or I don't want you to do anything but other than hear this. In much the same way that Frito-Lay has this sovereign market plan, so does God. And while Fritos and Cheetos may not be your thing, you might be exclusively a Lay's person. <laughs> you, might be a, you might be a rolled gold pretzel person. I want you to hear this, that God has a sovereign plan and all of our preferences for how the sovereignty of God appears may be different. There are some of you who may appreciate the sovereignty of God as just the general notion that God is in control of all things. Uh, and others of you may not want to see it as his control. You may want to see it as God wins in the end. Others of you may want to see the sovereignty of God as, man, he's the Lord over my salvation and his grace is sovereign. Others of you may want to see God as the sovereign one who is in control of the intricate details of my life when I'm having the most difficult seasons of my life. But no matter what your flavor is, I want you to understand that we should all grow to savor the sovereignty of God regardless of what season we are in. We should all grow to savor the sovereignty of God, regardless of what season of our lives we're in. I hope you see what we're doing there is that so God is more ubiquitous than Frito-Lay will ever be. But I want you to note that the that God has got the same game plan in every market and in every place and in every season and in every stage of life. And it is our responsibility to learn how to savor the sovereign plan of God in every season and every situation of life. We've watched Daniel and uh, with those with him and now more almost exclusively him um, encounter the sovereignty of God in some really different seasons of life. The early seasons of Daniel's life just seemed like it was mostly the sovereignty of God playing out in his own personal choices. Uh, later, we see the sovereignty of God playing out in some national movements. But understand that in the backdrop, it's all God's sovereignty. And I want us as people to not only grow in our better understanding of eschatology, but I want us to grow in our enjoyment and our appreciation of the sovereignty of God over multiple seasons and times and circumstances of life. We need to grow in this way. And so I'm going to help us grow by looking at some developments in Daniel chapters 10 through 12 uh, this morning. And that is kind of the big idea. We should savor the sovereignty of God. God 
in every season of life. So regardless of your point of entry, there's always some aspect of God's sovereignty that is at work most deeply in your lives in this season, no matter what you're going through. And I want to help us to enjoy that and savor that and grow in that through today's message. So as we pick up in uh, Daniel chapter 10, what you're going to notice about chapters 10 through 12 is that it is a more detailed unpacking of some of the previous visions that Daniel has already had about the uh, upcoming events that will impact Israel directly, their migration as a nation, and ultimately how things are going to impact the whole world at large and how we will ultimately see Christ when he comes into its kingdom. All these things are in view. And so as we look at this, I wanted to invite you to join me in uh, Daniel chapter 10, and let's look at verses 10 through 14. Uh, in verses 10 through 14, it follows a period of Daniel being prepared to receive, prepared to receive kind of this greater analysis or disclosure of this vision. And it says, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now. I have uh, been sent to you. And when uh, when he had spoken these words to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. I want to hear that one more time for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard and I have become, I have come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, we're talking about angels now, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the Kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision uh, of these days is yet to come. Now, just prior to this, uh, Daniel again had been awakened in the third year of Cyrus and he was deeply gripped by some of the visions that he had seen. And he had seen the image of an angel that came alongside him. And when the angel approached initially, he fell down weak. These heavenly visions left him at a place where there was no strength in him. And then when we pick up the story here in our reading, we see that one of these angelic beings uh, comes alongside him, touches him, strengthens him, stands him up and says, hey, man, you're greatly loved. And I want to show you some things and I want to tell you some things. But I hope you didn't miss this um, in the story. He said, the angel said to Daniel, because from the first day you humbled your heart before God, you set yourself to seek and to understand his words. You greatly beloved Daniel were coming to you to kind of share with you or to interpret these visions for you and to help you to know and to understand the things that God is doing. Now, this is a this is a, a staggering moment in the scriptures because the angel that comes alongside Daniel tells him that spiritually, in the spirit realm, he's on the way, but he is held up or withheld for 21 days by the prince of Persia. What is he talking about? He's not talking about an earthly king of Persia. He's talking about heavenly principalities. This passage reminds me of what we see over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. But before we get there, I want you to understand this. It is through diligence in prayer that we participate in God's sovereignty becoming a daily reality. 
Notice that Daniel is getting just this, this awesome view of God's sovereign work at the inv in the invisible realm and how it impacts the regular everyday realm. But the Bible says it is because of his diligence in prayer, his commitment to, to, to be humble before God and submit himself and to hear what God has to say that allows him through that diligence in prayer to participate in God's sovereignty, becoming a part of man's daily reality. Let's just be honest. We can all hear the word sovereignty and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about, you know, God's big, God's huge, God's got all power and God's in all control. But how does that actually play into our daily reality? And then you see these angels saying that they're, they've been withheld for, for 21 days while they were uh, on their way to, to get to Daniel and answer prayer and provide clarity. This is an incredible view of things that are happening in the invisible realm. Well, is this just exclusive to Daniel? No, it also happens in our lives. How do we know? Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. Listen to these words very carefully. The apostle Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is exactly what Daniel showed us. Now the Bible in the New Testament is telling us how this thing works. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having on the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness, which is given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times, praying at all times, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So here we are in the New Testament told to pray the same way that, Dale, that Daniel prayed back in his day. And why? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling against invisible principalities and powers. This is exactly what the New Testament tells us. And so, but, but why are we wrestling? I believe that this is a call for all believers like David, like, excuse me, like Daniel, but today for us to participate in bringing the sovereignty of God into a daily practical reality. And we do it through diligence in prayer. Well, what exactly does this diligence in prayer look like? I believe the Apostle Paul does us a great favor by giving us three pictures of what prayer or diligent prayer looks like in Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. Look at what he says. If we're going to be strong in the Lord and in his might, he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And before that, he says, or excuse me, after that, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He didn't say we don't wrestle. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Which means the first aspect of diligent prayer that brings the sovereignty of God into practical, daily, grippable reality is this. Pray like a wrestler. Pray like a wrestler. What do I mean? Now, obviously, Paul did not have in view the WWE. He was thinking about Greco-Roman wrestling, which at its core has this idea of grappling and grippling and trying to grab hold of. Pray like a wrestler. 
James would tell us that, that the, uh, the attitude of prayer, the, the kind of prayer that really is effective is what? Fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Fervent effectual prayer. So this motif of praying like a wrestler is one who has an attitude of, of grappling, winning, groping, striving, that our prayer lives should reflect a certain kind of attitude and effort that is like that of a wrestler who is deploying one's strength and abilities and one's effort to seek the heart of God concerning a given issue. We are told to pray like a wrestler because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But then in verse 13, the Bible tells us something else. In verse 13, we are told to therefore take up the whole armor of God. So we are also in our prayer lives told to not only pray like a wrestler, but to also pray like a warrior. We often hear the term prayer warriors, warriors. It has become kind of a cliche phrase for people who pray a lot, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe a team of people who like to pray uh, that we might call on when we're having a difficult time. But we are all called to pray like warriors. We're told to put on an armor. Well, what does it mean to pray? like a warrior. That means to be specific, intentional, and strategic. Notice that when Paul calls us to put on the whole armor of God as a part of our wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against these cosmic powers, notice how he in detail strategically outlined what each piece of the armor does, right? The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, right? The girdle of truth, the, 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 the gospel, the gospel of peace, sharding our feet, having a shield of faith, that is able to extinguish the darts of the adversary. This is very specific, intentional, and strategic. We ought to pray like a wrestler, which is the attitude of fervence and seriousness in our prayer lives, and we ought to pray like a warrior, being specific and intentional in the things that we pray about and we talk about and the things that we go before God in. But also, we're told to not only pray like a wrestler or pray like a warrior, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, do what? Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. I want you to pay attention to that language. Keep alert, pray like a wrestler. We already know that pray like a warrior, but also pray like a watchman. Step into kind of the warrior motif that Paul has already set up for us. Pray like a watchman, one who keeps alert. But notice that he says in verse 18, the person who's keeping alert, he's praying for all saints. I want to really impress on this right here that, that when we pray like a watchman, our efforts in prayer are not aimed at our own issues. We're praying and interceding with all prayer for all saints. You see, when the sovereignty of God really begins to work in my prayer life, not only does it kind of elevate my view of prayer to understand that I'm not just praying about physical things or physical realities, that there is a, there is a sovereign, supernatural, spiritual uh, uh, battle that I'm participating in. It not only lets me know that I need to put on a certain kind of armor and be strategic and specific and fervent, but it also says to be a watchman, pray with all kinds of alertness, praying for all saints, praying like a watchman. If you understand the idea of a watchman, it's a person who may have what they consider to be on the surface one of the most boring jobs of all the folks uh, in the army. That is to simply stand watch in the event that something does happen, right? Their role, the most active part of their role is to stand watch and to not take silence or stillness in the horizon or the environment for granted. But to understand that regardless of what you see, the enemy is planning something. 
And if the watchman is not doing their job, they put at jeopardy not just themselves, but the whole city that is under their watch. We are called to pray like watchmen. I remember kind of uh, some years ago, paying some additional attention to my prayer life. This might sound silly to you, but I would write down my prayers, uh, and oftentimes I would even record myself praying because I wanted to look and listen to what I was praying about. And you know what I discovered? That my prayer life was not very much like a watchman. It was very much like I was praying in a snow globe. It was very selfish. In other words, the majority of my prayer, 90% of my prayers was very much concerning the stuff that affected my little world. When my world was shaken, that was the stuff that I prayed mostly about. And I, and I just sought in that moment to make a real shift. I wanted to be more of a watchman in my prayer, not just a person that lives in this little globe of my own world. And that's the only stuff that I'm concerned about. And so if I want to see like Daniel and I want to obey what the scripture says, like Paul says, I want to see the sovereignty of God, this high uh, concept of God's work in the universe. If I want to see the sovereignty of God come into practical reality, then I need to be a person like Daniel who is committed to diligence in prayer because that's how we participate in the sovereignty of God. Pray like a wrestler, fervent. Pray like a warrior, being strategic. Pray like a watchman, one who, has, who understands that there is far, far more at risk than just my own personal stuff. This is important. I want to just say this, that finally, when we look at somebody like Daniel, when we look at how his life has panned out in the scriptures and all the things that God has allowed him to see, this is a man who has great, what I would call gritty faith. And gritty faith comes from living like the word is really true and like God is really in control. Gritty faith is, is, is completely different from flashy faith. And I want to tell you the difference. Gritty faith is a faith that takes his greatest pride in trusting God, regardless of what's going on. But flashy faith is one that loves to boast and brag about what has happened, right? Gritty faith is one that, that doesn't look for any accolades. It just, it takes great pride in the fact that God is in control no matter what's going on. But flashy faith loves to just kind of advertise how God is answering prayer in certain ways. And there's nothing wrong with God answering prayer, but we want to have greedy faith, not just flashy faith. Uh, we, we want to have the kind of faith that, 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 that if you go out and you say, you know what, I've gone to the doctor and I've got a second diagnosis. diagnosis is not good, but the Lord is on the throne and my life belongs to him. Nobody wants to walk in that person's shoes, but everybody would want to know that person's God because they want that kind of greedy faith. Everybody would love to have the kind of flashy faith where you say, well, every time I open my mouth toward God, he gives me what I want. New house, new car, et cetera, et cetera. That's flashy faith. And God does answer prayer like that. But God also wants us to develop gritty faith, the kind that says life may not be going my way, but life is going God's way. And I'm going to go God's way and trust him regardless of what's going on. And that's the kind of faith that Daniel modeled throughout the 12 chapters that we're taking a look at. And I believe this is the kind of faith that God wants to groom and grow in each one of us as we participate in his sovereignty, becoming a part of our daily reality. And we do that by adopting Daniel's attitude of committing ourselves before him, to him, and being diligent in prayer. I hope you've seen that in Daniel's life throughout this story. Now turn with me in your Bibles, kind of your focus back to what was happening in Daniel. Chapter 10 prepares him for kind of the uh, the greater outcome of some of these, these visions that have really gripped him and caused him a degree of anxiety at points. And now in chapter 11, there is more specificity given to the vision. And here is just kind of the opening paragraph of that. In chapter 11 of Daniel, it says, as for me, verse one, and as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, 
I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall rise who shall rule with the great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to his authority with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to outside or others outside of him. This is talking about, again, Alexander the Great. This is more specificity of how his kingdom will grow in advance. And Alexander would have loved to have left his kingdom to his posterity, to his sons or to his offspring or even to his generals. But no, he died uh, uh, subsequent to this and the normal succession of the throne did not take place. And there's another person coming up who is actually going to produce a great deal of trouble for Israel. This is, oh, this is the beginnings of the movements of a, a general we talked about last week. Uh, that is Antiochus IV. But here's the question one has to ask. What's up with all of this detail? If I were to stand here and read for you uh, the entirety of Daniel chapter 11, your head would spin listening to all of the political military nuance about how the four kings and one from the south and one from the north, the expanse of richness, richness uh, how coups would raise up and how there would be all of this, these skirmishes that would result in this person being in control and then this nation or this kingdom being in control. What's up with all of that? I mean, why does God feel it necessary to offer this level of detail? I I mean, also, I want you to consider the fact that a lot of the activity that we're seeing in these chapters is covering from 537 B.C. all the way up to 187 B.C., meaning that the first people to actually receive the words of this prophecy, they will only experience a tiny portion of it. But the, the greater portion of it will happen beyond their own lifetimes. So why does God feel it necessary to give this level of detail? Well, one answer would be this. Diligence in the word allows us to see the sovereignty of God in the history of redemption. You see, the, whether it's the first generation to receive this prophecy, the second generation to receive all this detail, the third, fourth, or the fifth. Subsequent generations were held accountable in God's economy, Israel in particular. Subsequent, each generation was held accountable for paying clear attention to the words that had been delivered and captured by their prophets. Because if each generation would take responsibility for what God had said to the former generation, they could properly prepare themselves for what God was going to do next. As we talked about last week, the great captain gives a word so that the crew is not taken off guard by things that are happening within their times and culture. And so God isn't just speaking to hear himself speak. He's actually, again, preparing and providing for his people and trying to provoke another level of faith. So when I when I look at these stories, if, if, if diligence in God's word allows me to see the sovereignty of God in the history of redemption, what exactly should I be looking for in all of this? You and I, as contemporary believers, as we read about these things that really represents part of, at that time, Israel's future, but for us, a lot of it represents history. Like, is this even useful and necessary? Why does it belong in the Bible? Because as I read it, if I practice diligence in God's word, I get to see how sovereign he is over and over again in the history of redemption. Uh, maybe this passage will help you appreciate this. Hebrews chapter 13, verses seven through nine. The New Testament authors say, 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who, who are devoted to them. The big story there is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So whenever I pick up my Bible, I am looking for that common thread, even if it's really chunky historical information that doesn't seem to apply to me directly in some way. I'm looking for how Jesus Christ is sovereignly the same in redemption yesterday, today, and forevermore. These are the lenses that we as contemporary believers need to look at the scriptures through. And so I'm looking for Christ in the text. You know, there are many uh, cliches uh, when it comes to history, right? What's one of the most common? Oh, history repeats itself, right? Or um, those who don't learn from their history are destined to repeat it. There's all these cliches around history. Some are positive, some are negative, but all seem to point to the same thing, that there is an element of patterning or redundancy to history. I believe a great biblical truth concerning history is this, is that history is redundant because the need for redemption is ever present. In other words, no matter what time or season or stage of history you're in, we never see the need for redemption going away. So yes, history does repeat itself, but not just because it's cyclical. History is redundant because the need for redemption is ever present. God is the one who is constantly talking to every civilization, every kingdom, and every culture. Why? Because every culture, listen to this, every culture has its bragging right. As we've been following the story of Daniel, we've heard about the advancements of the kingdom of Egypt, the kingdoms of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, Greece, and even we'll hear about Rome. And I want you to understand this. If you read secular history, if you read biblical history, you'll notice that every major culture and kingdom has its bragging right, whether it's Egypt and their mathematics, architecture, and technology, whether it's Babylon and their shrewdness and their specific types of uh, battle array or their armaments, whether it's Persia and their particular giftedness and usefulness with horses, or whether it's Greece and the, uh, and the wisdom, or whether it's Rome and, uh, uh, and, their, and their style of government with democracy, every culture seems to have is bragging right. But at the same time, if you read carefully the annals of history, you'll note that not only does every culture have its own bragging right, but every culture also has its own brokenness. Every major kingdom seems to end by way of internal or either external reasons. And if we study those carefully, we can see the hand of God revealing to man the desperate need that they have for something other than themselves, their bragging right, their prowess, their goal, or their gods. And there's something else that you also need to note about all of the great historic stories that we see in the Bible and even in secular history is this. Every culture has its bragging right, every culture has its brokenness, but also every culture has its brush with the people of God. Whether they are this distant, tiny nation caught up in the belly of Egypt through slavery, or whether or not they are this little tribal exilic, this exilic people who have been decimated and displaced from their land in the belly of Babylon, Every major kingdom as it advances has some kind of encounter with the, or some kind of brush with the people of God, whether it be the advancement of the Roman Empire, who, who was born there? Jesus. In the belly of the Roman Empire, here comes Jesus Christ himself. So every culture in history has its bragging right, has its brokenness, but also has its brush with the people of God. And the comings and goings of that nation always seem to be connected 
to how they handle that brush with the people of God and their, 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 how they interact with the one true God of those people. And so as we look at history, we can enjoy the sovereignty of God in the history of redemption if we look at how Jesus has been the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so God is calling the kingdoms to learn of him, not just their gaffes and military money or governance, right? So as you look throughout history, the, the brokenness and the, 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 the reciprocal nature of history, or not reciprocal, the redundant nature of history, is God constantly repeating himself and saying, how much each one of you cultures and each one of you kingdoms need me? And how do they manage uh, exposure to their own brokennesses? All right, so um, I think we would be good to note that if we are looking at history, the history of redemption in scripture, uh, or, or, or passages of scripture that maybe have a lot of movement of kingdoms, we would be uh, good to note this, that every culture's critique, anything that we can look at a, a culture and say, man, they did that wrong. God is doing us a great favor by looking at the brokenness of past cultures because every culture's critique is actually a cry for true redemption. Every culture, the reason that they crumble, it is actually a cry for redemption that only God can offer. It is God using the annals of history to paint a picture of how much every land, every people, and every culture, regardless of their prowess, need God. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23 put it this way. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. And listen to this very carefully. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the, body, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that all of creation and its collective brokenness, the creation itself, the people themselves, we are yearning and we are crying like birth pains, waiting for something else to be born. Who? The revelation of those who are the firstborn from the dead, those who are the, the firstborn, the, first, the, the, the fruits of salvation in Christ. And so the whole world in all of its brokenness is actually a beacon that there's something better coming and that something better is Christ and the revelation of those who are in him. And that revelation of the sons of God is specifically referring to that eschatological revelation when those who are, who are triumphing in Christ rule with him. And the world finally sees the big picture of redemption, that this is what God has been doing always. Chapter 12, well, chapter 10 prepared Daniel for this vision. He was weak, strengthened by an angel, and then told that his prayers are being answered. Chapter 11 gives us, uh, and Darius uh, at the time, this very, very comprehensive view of the shiftings of, of four kingdoms, uh, including the end of his own kingdom that would reach its climax with the coming of Antiochus IV, the worst persecutor of the Jewish people that they would know uh, uh, up until this time uh, or during this time. And uh, as the chapter closes or as the story closes with um, Daniel chapter 12, I want you to read these words in verses one through four with me. It says, and at that time shall rise 
excuse me, and at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who was in charge of your people. This is the, the, the angel Michael, who is, right, the prince, uh, heavenly authority, who is in charge of the people of Israel, the God's people, right, overseeing them, caring for them. Uh, this is just an incredible spiritual uh, um, uh, visibility here. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never, uh, that has never been seen uh, at a nation till, till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name shall be found in, shall be found written in the book. And of many of those who sleep in the dust uh, of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars uh, uh, forever um, and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, in this moment, Michael is or the, 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 the vision is being interpreted. The, the, the final stages of the vision is being interpreted as this that Antiochus IV will come in and God's people will be subjected to a level of torment and a level of, of desolation um, and suffering and persecution they've never experienced before. And then the scriptures seem to parallel Antiochus IV's treachery with that of the Antichrist uh, at the end of all things. So, so, so in other words, it's like uh, the, the views of the prophets skip right over the church. They don't skip. It's just that the church was not uh, revealed to them. And Peter talks about this. Uh, but before we get to what Peter talks about in the view of the church uh, or the lack thereof by, by previous prophets, I want you to uh, appreciate what God is doing by telling Israel that their faith will be challenged like never before, or that their lives and their nation will be challenged like never before, but then they will see later exaltation like never before for those whose names are found in the book of life. I want you to follow this. It is, it is through perseverance of faith that we become the proof of God's sovereignty and salvation. So again, it's through diligence and prayer that we participate in God's sovereignty becoming a part of daily reality. It is through diligence in the word that we see the sovereignty of God uh, in in the history of redemption. And it is through perseverance of faith that God's people become the proof of God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, when we lived in Michigan, we lived near, you know, obviously the big three, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. And I remember living near or seeing uh, the Ford Proving Grounds. And the Proving Grounds are where you take a brand new car that hasn't gone into production just yet, and they take it through this battery of tests, right? They run it around these curves at extremely high speeds, or they run it through simulated rain, or back it up a hill, or go down a hill. And they take this vehicle, and they put it through all of these, these batteries of tests, if you will to see how the, uh, the vehicle perseveres. But I want you to understand that the, the point of the engineers taking that vehicle through the test is not to destroy the vehicle, it's to prove it. It's to prove the vehicle. It is to, to become absolutely clear on its strengths and its weaknesses so that they can go back to the drawing board and effectively strengthen and improve the vehicle. When you think about the perseverance of God's people, his sovereignty in the perseverance of our faith, when our faith is under pressure, the testing of our faith is actually the proving of our faith. Or uh, first Peter would put it this way. Um, to an, we have been begotten to an inheritance that is in first Peter chapter one, verses four through nine uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed 
uh, at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, um, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result of the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the testing of the body is not like the test you get in school where they're trying to find out what you do know or what you don't know or maybe to fail you. But God's testing in sovereignty is a proving of the genuineness of our faith, just like a, a vehicle that is being proven whether or not it can handle certain conditions. Our faith is being proven. And so in God, in sharing these, um, uh, these prophecies about Israel's uh, um, uh, persecution, and then also how there will be a season of persecution that affects those who are here in the end times, the whole point is to prepare us for the proving of our faith, the testing, which is more the proving of our faith. Why? To see if we're devoted to anything other than God, to make sure that there's nothing in us that desires anything other than God, and to also strip us of any dependencies that we have on anything other than God. That's the point of our faith being proven. When we look at these passages, it looks eerily as if the angels are giving Daniel information that applies to Israel and then kind of leapfrogging over the existence of the church right into the end times. And that's because of what first Peter says here in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and, his suffer and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been known and announced to you through those who were preached the good news to you uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look into. And so the whole audience of heaven looks at what's happening with the church now going, oh, that's what God was doing all this time. We didn't see that previously. This is awesome. This is how you're going to uh, uh, continue to have a people for yourself that you sovereignly keep and preserve throughout history. You're doing this great work through the church. And so this is a beautiful thing that we're seeing here, but our faith still must be proven. And so I, I hope that as we have walked through these very choppy waters of eschatology and certain appearances of, of historical events that may have been slightly confusing, battles and clashes, some of which that were uh, involving Israel, others that were beyond Israel. I hope in all of this that we've seen the great need for increased diligence in our prayer lives, diligence in our word life, and also perseverance in our faith life, all of which draw us in to be participants in this bigger story of God's sovereignty. Um, I hope that also for us, that, that we understand uh, as we increase in our knowledge of the bigger story, it enables you to live out a higher quality of your own personal story. So let's not uh, avoid the larger topics of scripture, even or the larger topics of scripture, such as the sovereignty of God and salvation, the history of redemption, uh, the big topics like eschatology. Let's not avoid those uh, because they're unfamiliar, but let's dive into them because they actually equip us to live more confidently and effectively right now in the meantime. Um, one of the, the questions that came up in community group just a, a, a few nights ago that I really appreciated um, was in light of all of the end time discussions about coming clashes and battles, should we be sharing the gospel from the vantage point of eschatology? 
And I would say this, sometimes yes. But what we really need to be faithful to is this, share the gospel by way of application. Share the gospel against whatever the current backdrop is in our times in history. Remember, the whole goal of the church is to model for the world that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And how do we do that? By showing the gospel or sharing the gospel against whatever the current historical political backdrop is. Whatever is going on in our nation right now that is the most apparent and most pressing thing, share the gospel against that backdrop. That's, what, that's what's happening in the life of Daniel, that the story of redemption is being, is being painted against the current backdrop of what Israel is going through. And that ethic does not go away. We should be sharing the gospel against our current backdrop, which demands that we increase in gospel literacy, that we grow in our knowledge of the gospel, and how we might present it or share it. Open our mouths and say it, and share it with people over against the current contemporary backdrop of what's happening in our times. And when we do that, People get a picture of how relevant Jesus is yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's not just the end-time God. He's not just the, the real-time God. He's not just a historical ancient God. He is the God of all time. And that is the goal of the church, to model the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is for all times, not just for this time, not just for some past time, and not just for the great or the, the, the big here and now at the end of all things. So I encourage you. Um, continue to read these uh, uh, passages like these, get very familiar with the, the deeper historical um, stories of God's redemption. But I also want to encourage you that in all things, learn how to share the gospel in such a way that we can show that Christ is king sovereignly yesterday, today, and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your, um, your great grace and mercy given to us in the pages of your word. We ask now that um, our hearts would just um, be knit together in a greater knowledge of who you are in history, who you are in our own futures and who you want to be and how you want to be revealed right now. Um, that our hearts would say, not because we read it, but because it resonates deeply within us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.